This is the third day of this October 2020 online five-day session. <clears throat> and we'll take one more day on our text from yesterday and the day before, a book called The Original Face, which is an anthology of uh, Rinzai Zen uh, writings, teachings. And it's translated by and edited by Thomas Cleary. <clears throat> Question. If there is fundamentally no illusion in the nature of mind, where do illusions come from? And then Zen Master Daikaku. When false thoughts arise, illusion comes along, and because of illusion, afflictions are born. When errant thoughts cease, then illusion goes, and when illusion goes away, afflictions also die out. Let's just take that much uh, right now. When false thoughts arise, illusion comes along. That is, if we attach to these false thoughts, if we dwell in these false thoughts, then this is what breeds illusion, the illusion of division, the illusion of us and them, self and other. And because of illusion, that is the, the illusion of separateness, of some kind of fundamental division, of two-ness, fundamental two-ness, uh, because of that, afflictions are born. Afflictions come from that. And then when errant thoughts are, cease, then illusion goes. That is when we stop clinging to our thoughts and engaging with them. Then illusion goes, the illusion of separateness. And when illusion goes away, afflictions also die out. And uh, of course, he's talking here about a very, 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 very advanced state of deep enlightenment. Because even after uh, awakening, an awakening less than complete, less than perfect, uh, afflictions tend to hang on in one's character and maybe a, a much more manageable uh, form, uh, less uh, troublesome, but still uh, afflictions. Uh, in uh, this just springs to mind as I'm talking in in uh, Theravadan Buddhism, uh, there is this uh, classification of afflictions uh, into three categories. Uh, there are the lesser afflictions, uh, just everyday life. Then there are the grosser afflictions, the deep. Uh, greed, anger, delusion, things like that. 
And then there are what are called the latent afflictions. The latent afflictions uh, keep their distance usually in our daily lives, but under stress, when we face what we perceive as a threat, when we're really uh, getting threadbare and uh, maybe sleep-deprived and uh, facing all kinds of problems, then these latent afflictions um, arise. They erupt. Think of these cases we hear about in the news where a mild-mannered young man who his neighbors say, oh, he's just nothing remarkable about him. He just he seemed like a pretty nice guy, uh, quiet, usually they're quiet, uh, who then goes on a rampage of some kind. That's latent afflictions erupting. I, uh, here's another example that springs to mind, uh, road rage. And by the way, according to a study I heard about uh, a few years ago, um, the, the drivers most likely to get involved in road rage are those with bumper stickers. And the study found it doesn't matter much what the bumper sticker reads. Give peace a chance. World peace. All one. It's uh, very interesting, isn't it? Back to our afflictions here. When illusion goes away, afflictions also die out. Here, let me, uh, let me skip forward a couple of pages where Daikaku uh, mentions some afflictions, common afflictions. Uh, well, these are the really gross ones, of course. Murder, theft, adultery, falsehood. Um, yeah, these are these track the first of the five cardinal precepts: not killing, not stealing, not misusing sexuality, not lying, not abusing alcohol or drugs. Um, yeah, so maybe those would be the five gross afflictions, or the the that would be among the the gross afflictions, not the lesser ones. Lesser ones are maybe the 6th through 10th precepts, uh, cardinal precepts. He continues here. Afflictions are things of life, seeds of birth and death. Enlightenment is the way to extinction. Now there's things there that I need to unpack. Uh, afflictions are things of life. Here, by life in this context, 
means uh, our our fundamental um, drive to be and exist uh, a poet some poet said that which in the green fuse drives the flower sounds okay if not you know miraculous that there is this force that drives all living things to to be and to become and to go on existing to put it in the negative it's that force uh, in which uh, we uh, resist dying to put another cast on it it's uh it's our it's our basic uh, craving uh, to go on existing well of course everyone what's wrong with that naturally it's uh but from a, a really basic context of Buddhist belief uh, that's what that's the engine that drives this wheel of samsara which is a wheel of suffering afflictions are things of life seeds of birth and death that's this that's samsara that's the wheel of uh, birth and death uh, it took me years to appreciate that because that could be a little bit um, not not the clearest thing uh, birth and death also means aging think of that seeds of aging think of all the the little forms of loss that we endure through aging now those of you who are old enough to have gone through those things aging uh, and this isn't just things related to vanity not just uh, loss of whatever attractiveness we may have had in our youth uh, our skin tone hair suppleness and so forth uh, but also uh, the physical aches and pains that creep in and the other ailments that become more common as we age um, the just general uh, diminution of resilience where uh, physical resilience where we uh, don't we tend to not recover as quickly from injuries or maybe illness I'm not sure about that one so when we hear birth and death expand that a bit make it understand what that really encompasses sickness old age or aging that's enough uh, loss of memory loss of uh, mental acuity it's inevitable uh, for some people that those losses happen sooner and they're more serious other people can 
go on uh, deep into old age with more, um, remain more flexible and sharp. But uh, it's an, an in, inexorable process. There's no way out of it except premature death. We are going to suffer physical and mental loss. That's Think of that when you hear birth and death. I think it makes it a little more meaningful. And then the other little ongoing things of illness and, and injuries and colds and, and so forth. So uh, afflictions are things of life, seeds of birth and death. Enlightenment is the way to extinction. Extinction. As an old uh, Buddhist term um, can be misleading, a little bit controversial. It's a, it's a word that we encounter more in, in uh, Theravadan Buddhism than Mahayana Buddhism. Um, there, these are the two main streams of the Dharma. Uh, there's the, the Mahayana, of which Zen is a Mahayana Buddhist tradition. Uh, it's based on the Bodhisattva vows to uh, go on working even after enlightenment for the welfare of other beings. And then the Theravadan tradition, uh, which is, has less emphasis on that um, and uh, more emphasis on just getting off the wheel oneself. I think that's fair uh, rendering of it. But extinction, as I understand it, it's not crystal clear to me either. The extinction means the extinction of craving. It's extinction of, think of it as think, uh, extinction of blind passions. Nirvana is sometimes translated as extinction, but uh, nirvana, I think I'm Maybe a more another way to understand nirvana is it comes from a root word uh, that means a cooling, cooling of passions, cooling of craving. I remember when I uh, attended my introductory workshop in 1970. Oh, half a century ago, fall fall of 1970, I remember Roshi Kaplow um, mentioning this problem of human craving and, and he said uh, through ongoing practice uh, you lose what you, you see craving wither and uh, that was music to my ears at the time because I was tormented by my promiscuity and all the guilt I felt about sleeping around so much. And and uh, to hear him say, it's not, you don't lose the capacity to respond sexually, but what 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 withers is this this compulsive nature of it. And I would say I can confirm what he was saying then 
All right. Uh, he continues. If you take peace and quiet to be bliss, all things are afflictions. But when you are enlightened, all things are the functioning of this true mind. People of the world, that is, people who have no spiritual aspiration, people of the world do not understand the basis of delusion and enlightenment. They suppress thoughts of birth and death and think that this is the non-birth of a single thought and also consider this mindlessness. I'm going to change mindlessness to no-mindedness, which we talked about yesterday, the day before. But these are still thoughts of birth and death, not, not no-mindedness, not quiescence. When you try to stop thought by thought, birth and death continue. Okay, let's, let's go back over this. People of the world, uh, let's say people, deluded people, those who are more deluded than others, do not understand this basis of delusion and enlightenment. And then, then here he talks about what apparently is some, some kind of meditation practice. They suppress thoughts of birth and death. It is, they suppress thoughts of life or, um, they suppress thoughts. That's good enough. They suppress thoughts and think that this is the non-birth of a single thought. And they also consider this no-mindedness. Of course, I'm just, I'm speaking now myself. Uh, suppression can never be no-mindedness. Suppression is uh, misguided. It's uh, ineffective to try to suppress whatever we judge to be bad thoughts or anything else. That's not going to work very well. And he says, but these are still thoughts of birth and death, still thoughts of, of uh, that which uh, yeah, exists. Not no-mindedness, not true quiescence. When you try to stop thought by thought, birth and death continue. This is, in other words, this is not any kind of liberation. If you're uh, trying to will thoughts into submission. But I think most anyone who is listening to this knows that one of the basic mistakes uh, is to try to suppress or stop or dispel thoughts. Now moving forward here in this text. Next question. In seeing true nature and realizing enlightenment, what is the way? What is true nature? And how does the seer see? Can it be known by knowledge? Can it be seen by the eye? This uh, 
this kind of a question uh, seems clearly something that, that is that Daikaku or the editor of his text uh, is using as a device stack up to stack up these questions. Uh, it doesn't matter; they're good questions. So then, his answer. Knowledge attained by studying sutras and treatises is discriminating knowledge from seeing, hearing, discerning, knowing. In other words, uh, yeah, discriminating knowledge. Then he says, this practice, meaning zazen, the practice of no-mindedness, does not need such knowledge. I found this, uh, these, these words of, attributed to Jesus in the Gospel of St. Thomas, where he says, I shall give you what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no hand has touched, what has not arisen in the human heart. In Zen terms, this is this true self that is no self. It is this, this reality, awfully dry word, but there it is. It is this reality that cannot be known through the five senses and the discriminating mind, the, the, the conceptual mind. What is that? It is beyond any kind of knowing uh, we've we ordinarily think of as knowing. What is it? What is Mu? It's beyond anything we can know or imagine. It's beyond what the what this ordinary mind can reach. And so Daikaku says this practice of Zazen does not need uh, such knowledge, certainly doesn't need uh, acquired knowledge, learning. So it's always been referred to historically as a teaching of direct experience beyond words and letters. And then Daikaku employs this uh, well-known well uh, image. He says, turning the light around to shine back, knowing and seeing fundamentally inherent nature is called the eye of wisdom. After seeing the self-nature, then seeing, hearing, discernment, and knowledge may then be put to use. He continues, because all sentient beings have a fundamental nature, 
They are all equally endowed with this true nature. It supports their own bodies. This real nature has never been born, never dies, has no form or shape, is permanent and unchanging. This is called fundamental inherent nature. Since this inherent nature is the same as that of all Buddhas, all enlightened ones, it is called Buddha nature, enlightened nature. Question. What is turning the light around to shine back? Answer. Daikaku. Illumining outward things, one's own light is turned back to shine on the inner self. The mind is bright as the light of sun and moon, immeasurable and boundless, shining on all inner and outer lands. Where the light does not reach is dark. This is called the ghost den on the black mountain the abode of all ghosts. The mind phenomenon is also like this. The light of knowledge of the mind essence is infinite and boundless and illumines all things. Where the light does not reach is called the shadow world of ignorance, the skandhas and elements, the abode of all afflictions, which causes harm. The knowing mind is the light. Errant thoughts are shadows. The light illumining things is called shining, and when the mind and attention do not range over things, but are turned toward the original nature, this is called turning the light around to shine back. <clears throat> okay. There's a lot packed in here. First, let me point out that this this construct of, of of turning the light around to shine back, and also this other uh, reference, um, when the light is turned back to shine on the inner self, this can be very misleading. Uh, it suggests that we want. That we, we, we need to go inside and, well, it sort of suggests rejecting outside. But in our true nature, there is no inside or outside. Any kind of division like this is, 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 mis, is misleading. There are our true nature, Mu, or what we call it, capital I, our true nature is is not any more inside our bodies, mind, or as it is than it is outside. These terms, inside and outside, okay, they have some some usefulness, but still they're they're so misleading. I, I think back to the time I spent um, trying to drill uh, the time I spent on a mat trying to kind of mentally drill into my hara um, as if, you know, I was 
boring into and it's it's packed away in there somewhere hidden away this this moo this true nature is in my belly it's 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 the thing about the belly or the hara is that it can help uh help us get out of our heads if we if we are centered in the abdomen the lower abdomen but there's nothing in there that isn't outside as well as far as as practice the important thing in this both of these these phrases turning the light around to shine back um, is 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 to not be snared by the world of objects that's really the point it's not so much where to go as where to avoid being caught by objects and and always objects means first and foremost thoughts so to turn the mind around or turn shine the mind the, the light back means to uh, turn our attention away from objects thoughts thoughts and other objects uh, back to the subject the presumed subject here that is the one who not thoughts but the one who is thinking the one who's feeling one who is hearing and so forth who's that one questioning who that one is the form of of what is what is it what is this who is this who is that who is it what is mu that's all that's all those are all ways tried and true ways of uh, detaching from objects uh, and looking into the one who is experiencing or perceiving these things it's detaching from the world of thingness in order to see into the world of no thingness nothing now this re let me read read some of this um the mind is as bright as the light of the sun and moon that is our 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 bodhi mind our wisdom mind uh, is boundlessly aware and bright uh, the buddha uh the buddha once said this mind is pure in self and self-luminous in its nature but it is stained by adventitious defilements adventitious meaning defilements that have no substance to them have no roots to them that defilements that eventually sooner or later pass uh, but again this mind is pure and self-luminous and then he says where the light does not reach is dark this is called the ghost den on the black mountain the abode of all ghosts here 
you know, very very often in fact i would say m more often in zen darkness is seen as a very positive thing uh, i think uh it was hakuen who said the the mind of wisdom is dark dark as the dark as the mouth of a wolf And we could say that if you think of, of, of darkness as, as the opposite of logos, the opposite of acquired knowledge, then, then every particular practice a Zen student is working on is uh, meant to help us leave this light of knowledge and uh, in order to enter the darkness of not knowing. But here, Daikaku uh, is using it in the opposite way. Uh, that what, what, we, what we are not aware of, where the light does not reach, is called the shadow world of ignorance, the abode of all afflictions which can harm people. Uh, maybe in in contemporary Western terms, this is the the unconscious, uh, or maybe Freud's id. Again, this is well put, so I'll reread it. Uh, the light illumining things is called shining. So awareness, that's what light means, awareness. So awareness of things, awareness of our afflictions uh, is shining. And when the mind and attention don't range over things but are turned toward the original nature, this is called turning the light around to shine back. Turn toward the original nature. Well, for, for one who's working on Mu, that's it. That is our original nature. What it really means is that that which is beyond all these objects of thought. And then he says, it goes on, it is also called panoramic illumination illumining the whole of the immediate substance it is where neither delusion nor enlightenment have ever appeared in other words no divisions no tunis nowadays people think of basic mind by means of errant thoughts and consider afflictions enjoyable when will they ever escape birth and death Consider afflictions enjoyable. Again, at the risk of repeating myself, um, I think of an example of this as a, uh, this commercial I once saw for uh, some kind of chips, potato chips or something, and the, and the big, splashy um, message 
uh, on this TV commercial was, you can't stop eating them. <laughs> All right. Nowadays, people think of, consider the afflictions enjoyable, craving as enjoyable. And then just, you can broaden that to every kind of craving. Going back to, going back again and again to alcohol, drugs, and all the other forms of online shopping and everything else that uh, is uh, tempting us every day in this modern world. He continues, the non-production of a single thought is what is known as the original essence of the mind. In other words, what is beyond thought. It is not stopping thought, yet it is also not not stopping thought. It is just the non-production of a single thought. If you merge with this original essence, this is called the realization of the thusness of the reality things. Okay, reality of things. Kind of complicated. But then let's move on. Thus, even sitting meditation is no use here. There is no illusion, no enlightenment. So how could there be thoughts? If you do not know this original essence, you cannot help but produce thoughts even if you suppress them so they don't arise, this is all still ignorance. And then he brings forth a wonderful um, analogy for uh, this foolish effort to suppress thoughts. It is like a, a rock lying on the grass and then removed. Before long, the grass will grow again. You should work on meditation most meticulously and carefully, don't take it easy. In other words, it takes great sustained effort to succeed at this. Doesn't mean straining. That's, that's not helpful. Although even then, uh, a lot of us can look back and see how we strained uh, earlier on in our practice. And it didn't kill us. It didn't derail us. It, it just showed us that it's not, doesn't work very well to strain. So how do you, how do you make a full on effort without straining? How do you, bring forth full attention without tension. This is a, a question in other forms that uh, is often raised by people who are not, uh, haven't been sitting all that many years. And uh, there is no, there is no formula you, you, that you can give to people who have this question. Okay, do it this way. 
go up to level five, but don't go beyond. No. Um, how do you find that sweet spot where you're you're making a strong effort without straining? Here's the answer. You learn it over time. Just through experience. There's that word again. The school of direct experience. You're not going to be able to find a book that gives you the right metrics for hitting that spot exactly. You, you, you learn it you, you, through experience, through straining, or through letting yourself be lax, and through the process of elimination. Okay, that doesn't work, that extreme, or that one, that other extreme doesn't work. And then just through course corrections, we, we, we find our way there. Against all odds. No matter how hard it may seem when you think about it, when you think about it, if we just hang in there, we just persevere month after month, year after year, we do find our way more and more into that sweet spot, that effortless effort. It's a, it's a refining process. And it only can come through time. And speaking of time, this does not seem like the time to start another paragraph. So we'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs>